Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. Bible study. Um, Tonight we are going to talk about Elijah. Now, when Pastor gave me this topic of Elijah, first thing I thought of is like, how, where do you even start when it comes to these characters? Because there's just so much that you could talk about and so much that you could cover. Um, There's no way to get through it in a single day, let alone an hour. So um, I kind of just picked out a couple key points that I felt led to talk about. And uh, the goal was to um, just have some nuggets that you can possibly take away, um, you know, to help you in your spiritual journey, help us all in our spiritual journey. But what I wanted to start talking about first, before we get into the thick of Elijah, um, is the role of prophets in the Old Testament. So I just wanted to start there. So the main role of prophets um, during that time period in the Old Testament was to proclaim the word of the Lord in the manner that God had given it to them. So this role often emphasized shifting the people's focus back to living obedient to God's laws. Um, Prophets during that time frame expressly condemned things like idol worship, rituals and uh, idol rituals, uh, pagan practices that the people of God would have picked up by, you know, being surrounded by the nations that they didn't conquer and completely destroy, which God had commanded them to do from the beginning. I'm going to open this door because now I'm, now I'm hot. <laughs> <laughs> it was warm and cozy at first, but now I'm like burning up. <laughs> So as a result of the message that God had given prophets to carry, the heaviness of the, um, the word of the Lord that would come to the prophets directly from God, they were often mocked, they were thrown into prison, um, and they were often heavily persecuted. Um, God began to use prophets as his mouthpiece and his main way of speaking to his people during the period of the judges before Saul became king. They remained God's primary way of delivering his will and words until Jesus took the stage centuries later. Prophets were often shown things that were to come to pass, bring warnings, rebukes, and they would tell also blessings, what the blessings would be if the people of God would turn back to him. So um, sometimes you think of a prophet and you automatically think of, them seeing into the future, kind of telling the future. And sometimes God would use them for that, but that's just kind of a small role in the overarching um, role of a prophet, which is truly to proclaim the word of the Lord and to proclaim it like God told them how to do it, not to try to couch it or make it more appealing or fitting to what the people wanted to hear. Um, Prophets were set apart for the purpose of God. Sometimes they had different unique appearances. God would sometimes give them um, just kind of 
weird or weird roles that they had to play or um, kind of things that they had to do that were unorthodox. Elijah was known for wearing a garment of hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. We find that in 2 Kings 1.8. <clears throat> Elijah's mantle that he left for Elisha was also seen as a symbol of the prophetic office. And we see that in 2 Kings 2.13 and 14. So the role of Old Testament prophets reached its culmination in the person, excuse me, of John the Baptist, who was predicted in Malachi 4, verse 5, and in Jesus Christ, who was the prophet, like Moses, predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. So we can see, just by this definition, that the office of a prophet that was spoken of in Ephesians 4.11, which says, and he gave some apostles and prophets, and we know et cetera, et cetera, we're talking about the fivefold ministry. We see that the office of the prophet, the role and the importance of a prophet is still alive and still very much so needed in the church today. Um, it's interesting because when you talk about the fivefold ministry, sometimes we like to emphasize um, pastors, teachers, and preachers, but sometimes we forget about the role of the apostles and the prophets. And today, too, when someone says that they're a prophet or a prophetess, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, you're just throwing a title out there, you know. But, they, but there is still a place and there is still a relevancy for that office today. And we need it. We very much so need it in the, in the last days. So, um, like I said above, prophets were commissioned to speak the word of the Lord as the word of the Lord was given to them. So, I reiterate, so they weren't able to couch what was said. They weren't supposed to spin it to make it more palatable to the people. I won't get into the details there, but there are there were um, prophets like Balaam that really wanted to, and, and he was he was kind of a, a rogue <laughs> prophet at the end, but where God gave him specific instructions of what he was supposed to do. And as much as he wanted to deviate from it, he kept having to, you know, repeat, I have to say what God has given me. But this also meant that they had to learn to hear and to know the voice of God. Moses, for example, he was regarded as the greatest prophet um, he was instructed by God in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12 and 15. It says, now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. You are to speak to him, Pharaoh, and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth. Um, oh, sorry, Aaron is who he was referring to. I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Um, so in this example... He literally just had to be obedient and speak the word of the Lord. He said, I'm going to put the exact words in your mouth, and that's what you are to say. Deuteronomy 18.18 18 says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Numbers 22.38 says, So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth that I shall speak. First Kings 22:14. But Micaiah said, "As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak." Ezekiel 2:7. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. So as you can see, the role of a prophet it wasn't glamorous, it wasn't easy, contrary to again what 
modern day quote unquote so-called prophets like to um, boast about. Um, it wasn't something that was easy. It probably wasn't even coveted, you know? Um, especially because often like in the time frame of Elijah, which is what we're gonna be talking about tonight, prophets were notorious uh, for uh, speaking to kings and kingdoms. Um, these kings had authority to put you to death. It wasn't just, you know, you could, um, often you had to be summoned by a king or, you know, some higher dignitary before you could even come into their presence. And often the words that the prophets had to give to the kings were not, were not words that were going to be encouraging to them. <laughs> they were words of warning. They were words of judgment. Um, of course, no one could put a prophet to death, you know, unless God gave them the authority to do that. Um, but nevertheless, the whole point was strict adherence to the word of the Lord, no deviations. Um, and then the last part of this section, talking about the role of a prophet, I just wanted to read this scripture, Numbers eleven twenty nine. It says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. I wanted to include this scripture just to reinforce the office and gifting of a prophet and also the prophetic utterance that God desires for all of his people to have. Um, when you understand that prophets proclaim the word of the Lord, you can see how God would also desire that every Holy Ghost filled believer would learn to hear his voice and speak what he's saying boldly and unashamedly. So, Transitioning now, I want to give a little bit of historical context to this time period um, that Elijah kind of stepped into. And so we're just going to talk about a little bit what was happening uh, during this time that led up to his ministry, uh, ministry appearance. So we see Elijah coming on the scene in uh, starting in first Kings, kind of toward the middle portion. But if we're going to if we were to flip back to the beginning of first Kings, we can see that prior to his arrival, wickedness was just rampant. Elijah appeared during one of the darkest hours of Israel's history. So the people of God at this point in time were in an extremely depraved state. Israel had completely turned their back against their Jehovah God. And what was expressly condemned by God, things that were expressly condemned by God were, com were just common practice, everyday uh, cultural traditions among God's people at this time. So 58 years had passed since the kingdom was torn in half um, following the death of Solomon. So when the kingdom was torn in half, um, Sol or we'll we're going to talk about Jeroboam for a second. He reigned over Israel and then the other... Um, portion of the kingdom was over in Judah. So at that time, at least seven kings had reigned over the 10 tribes of Israel, and all of them had the same incriminating description, which is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeroboam was the first of those seven kings. He made two calves of gold, and he set one calf in uh, Dan, and then he put the other calf of gold in Bethel. He did this so that the people of God did not have to travel to Jerusalem to worship and offer sacrifices, which is what God had commanded them to do. So Bethel was the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, and Dan was in the north. And so he put the idols in Dan and Bethel, which made worship more convenient to the people. But it clearly cheapened true worship and caused God's people to turn away 
from worship of the one true God. So not only did um, Jeroboam create this idolatrous practice, um, making worship just completely cheap and insignificant by putting idols in Dan and Dothan, he also, the Bible says, picked the lowest of the people to become high priest. And if you were to read throughout um, when, when um, God was setting up the priesthood, they had to be a speci- in, a, in a specific bloodline. You know, there were very strict uh, guidelines that God had for priests. And so when you see an Israelite king setting up just, I mean, just the most depraved of the people, you can see how much of a slap in the face that was. So not only did he cause them to um, begin to worship idols, separate them from going up into the holy city of Jerusalem, which was a commandment by God to offer sacrifices. And then he put the worst of the worst as priests that were never called or never ordained by God. Nadab was the next king. He followed in the wicked footsteps of his father, according to the scripture. Basha was the king after Nadab, after he assassinated um, Nadab. Elah was next. He was a drunkard. He was a murderer. Zimri, who came after Elah, was known for his treason. And then there was Omri. He was the king after Zimri. But we see in 1 Kings 16, verse 25 through 26, it says, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord of Israel to anger with their idols. So we can see what has been established as common cultural norms at this point in Israel's history. There was nothing foreign to Israel when it came to idol worship, pagan practices, complete uh, depravity, and outright defiance against Jehovah God. And it was to the point where, you know, the more you do, the more you practice certain things, it just, you, you don't remember everything that the true God has done, you know, and your children are not familiar with the true God. And so this just continued and continued to where, like I was saying, it was just normal practice anymore. They had no connection to the God of their fathers. The next king, the son of Omri, was even more vile than the kings that came before him. First Kings chapter 16, verse 29, it says, in the 30th, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, who was the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It's like, how, how do you even get, if you, I mean, we can't go too much into it because it would take all, uh, the whole hour, but you can read what these kings were doing and they were, it was so terrible. And it's like, Ahab was even worse than all of that. How, to, how, how low can you go? <laughs> you know? Um, Okay, and then it says, um, and it came to pass as though it had been a a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took a wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wanted image. And then the scripture says, Ahab did more to to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What a way to be known. I mean, 
who you would never want that to be said of you. He was a terrible, terrible king. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with um, Abram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So I'm going to read this quote. It says, in a short time, all trace of the pure worship of Jehovah vanished from the land and gross idolatry became rampant. The golden calves were worshipped at Dan and Bethel. A temple had been erected in Baal, to Baal in Samaria. The groves of Baal appeared on every side, and the priests of Baal took full charge of the religious life of Israel. You can just kind of get a mental picture of what was going on during that time period. Even more so, a curse was declared on anyone who rebuilt the city of Jericho, and yet in Ahab's day, Hiel of Bethel began to rebuild that cursed city of Jericho. So with this scene of intense spiritual darkness, with the most wicked king Israel has ever seen, Elijah emerges. Elijah first makes his appearance in scripture in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. <laughs> So it's like he just comes out of nowhere <laughs> in the midst of all of this spiritual darkness. So let's talk about Elijah's background for a minute. So he was kind of presented to us in sort of a mysterious manner. Scripture doesn't mention anything of his ancestral history, his parents, um, or his earthly life, really. One example that I read of as to why um, this is the case uh, they compared it to Melchizedek, just like he was in the Bible, where he had no beginning and he had no ending. Elijah can be viewed as the forerunner of the everlasting prophet, Jesus Christ, because Elijah, too, has no documented beginning. And we know that in the end, he was caught away in a chariot of fire, never to have tasted of death. So he also had no ending in that sense. This depiction of Elijah places a highlight on Christ and his prophetic office that never ends. Scripture does mention that Elijah the was a Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. So quote here in reference to the people of Gilead states that the people of those hills re reflected the nature of their environment. They were rough and rugged, Solomon Stern, Stern dwelling in rude villages and, subsist, uh, and subsisting by keeping flocks of sheep. Hardened by an open air life, dressed in cloak of camel's hair, accustomed to spending most of his time in solitude, possessed of sinewy strength, which enabled him to endure great physical strain, Elijah would present a marked contrast with town dwellers in the lowland valleys, and more especially, would he be distinguished from the pampered courtiers of the palace. But when I was reading that, I thought, who does that sound like, right? It's just, I mean, thousands of years prior and then, you know, John the Baptist. It's, got, it's the same thing. It's just amazing how that happens. So we don't know how old he was or what type of religious training he was ever given, but we do know, however, from the scripture that Elijah was very zealous for the Lord. Um, without it even being explicitly written, we can see that Elijah was completely dedicated to Jehovah God. And he was also grieved at the sin that Israel was committing. 
We know from scripture that Elijah was a man of prayer. We know this from James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. I love how these verses state that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. We can see that he earnestly prayed. He was given to prayer in such a way that he would continue to pray with fervor. He would pray with conviction and he would pray with unwavering faith until something happened. Elijah prayed because he knew that something had to change. He prayed because he knew that he was powerless to do anything or create any kind of change on his own. He knew that there was no way that he could combat the darkness that he was you know, facing that was upon that land based on their decisions without praying, and he prayed earnestly. The things that Elijah was witnessing grieved him, but without the aid of the one true God, nothing would be done about it. He prayed because he grieved, grieved over his nation and his people, and he couldn't sit silent and do nothing. Israel had found themselves in the throes of Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16 and 17. It says, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So we see that Elijah was familiar with this decree from God because that was the first thing that he said, the first mention of Elijah. He prayed that God would shut up the heavens. A quote here says, So we see that true prayer is faith laying hold of the word of God, pleading it before him and saying, do as thou hast said. We can see that Elijah was praying directly in the will of God. With that in mind, we see why his prayer was answered. His prayer wasn't conjured up of his own thoughts and desires of what should happen. Rather, from the very word of God, he, he basically recounting what God had already spoken and calling it to account in a time that it was needed the most. So you see kind of how prayer effectual fervent prayer works. Sometimes we can pray out of our feelings, which is okay initially, but at some point we've got to grab a hold of the word of God and begin to pray the word of God because when you're praying the word of God, you're praying the will of God. And if you're praying the will of God, there is going to be something that can that's going to happen. Um, and we see that through Elijah's life. He prayed earnestly, and it does remind me of that scripture, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Um, there, I mean, anybody can pray, and God is gracious, and God often does answer, you know, our kind of flighty prayers, but there is a, there is a strategy to prayer when you really start to get into, and we have, an, we have a, um, a help, you know, through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray, and we can pray in the Spirit, and God will answer. So there are three notable traits of Elijah that I wanted to mention. <clears throat> the first one is boldness. So Elijah was unsummoned by the king. Um, kind of just mentioned it earlier 
that often you had to be summoned. There had to be kind of a reason why you were going to see the king. But he wasn't swayed by the potential consequences of his, you know, what could happen to him when he decreed this, this word um, to the king. He wasn't fearful of the danger that could come his way considering the messages that he had to bring. When you get a word and a vision from God, and you know it's God, if you allow it to, it will create a holy boldness inside of you that defies other thoughts of human reasoning. Um, sometimes they'll look at a word from God, and I know I, I'm guilty of this, you start to kind of like talk yourself out of it, or you don't want to say it because you don't know how it's going to be received. But Elijah showed us that no matter how it's going to be received, if you know that you've heard from God, if God is, if you've, you know, you know that this was the voice of God, don't allow your human reasoning to psych you out of it because God is speaking to you because he has something that needs to be said. So I'm talking to myself on that. <laughs> um, sometimes we like to sit and ponder what God is speaking to us and how we can package it in a way that people may receive it when the Lord is simply commanding us to obey it whether it's received or not. And like I said, that's that prophetic office. Second, he was a faithful witness. So even in the darkest time of Israel's history, God used Elijah to raise up a standard of righteousness and right living with God. Imagine how lonely it must have felt to Elijah. Um, he even had a season where he thought he was the only one that was still proclaiming the truth. Imagine yourself in his shoes Imagine a world where you see Christians, you see apostolics that you were worshiping with one Sunday, now being slaughtered, you know, left and right by a godless governmental system. It's not hard to imagine <laughs> right now. But imagine being in a nation that is so depraved that Christianity actually becomes illegal and considered a threat. <clears throat> Imagine the call, though, and the challenge that would be given to remain faithful to God, even when no one else around you is doing so, or when you're facing death. Again, it's not so hard to imagine anymore. <laughs> imagine having to proclaim the truth to the highest offices, the highest officials, the, one, the very ones that are enacting the laws against the faith, and that they can, they can you know, enforce penalty or punishment on you. That's what Elijah was facing. Third, he was loyal. He was completely sold out to God. Elijah's name means Jehovah is my God. How fitting for such a man to fulfill his life calling that is depicted in his very own name. Something that we need to understand is that there's nothing intrinsically different about Elijah that could have been said of any other human being. It was, you know, sometimes we really can, we see, what is it, hindsight is twenty twenty. You could kind of like read their lives and you could see all of the feats that they did and it just looks so glorious and you set them on some type of a pedestal that was God never intended. You know, he, like the Bible says, he was subject to like passion just like we are. There was nothing uniquely special about him other than the fact that he did what God told him to do. But scripture points out the humanity of Elijah. 
he went through the same kind of problems and emotions that we can often go through. He's, he experienced fear. He experienced depression and anxiety. Like I said, though, what makes Elijah stand out was his complete and total unwavering commitment to his God. That was a choice that he made. I want to just briefly mention the documented miracles of Elijah um, that occurred during his ministry. So in 1 Kings 17, um, he caused the rain to cease for three and a half years. He was fed by ravens in uh, 1 Kings 17, 4. Um, there was the miracle of the barrel of meal and cruise of oil. The resurrection of the widow's son. The famous calling of fire from heaven, um, consuming the, uh, the sacrifice on the altar. Uh, he ca Causing it to rain, 1 Kings 18.45. The prophecy that Ahab's sons would all be destroyed, 1 Kings 21.22. Prophecy that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs, 1 Kings 21-23. Prophecy that Ahaziah would die of his illness, 2 Kings 1-4. Calling fire from heaven upon the first 50 soldiers, that was 2 Kings 1-10. Um, and then he called fire from heaven upon the second 50 so uh, soldiers later on in that chapter. Parting of the Jordan, 2 Kings 2-8. Prophecy that Elisha should have a double portion of his spirit. Um, 2 Kings 2, 10, we'll, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more next week. And then being caught up in up to heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2, 11. One miracle that I do want to highlight, though, of course, <laughs> is the miracle of the fire coming from heaven, consuming the sacrifice on the altar. I want to mention it, though, because of the statement that he made to the people with his de declaration of his ministry. So the scripture says, and Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. That's 1 Kings 18, 21. This is so critical and important for today. You know, when I read that verse, I thought, well, what does it mean to follow? For me, it implies complete dependence on God. It implies non-wavering attention to where the spirit of the Lord is moving and to go in that direction. Elijah's words to those people demanded a response. If, you're gonna, if you confess that the Lord is God, then the only thing left for you to do is follow him. No half in, half out. If the Lord be God, follow him, period. And often what that means is that you have to do away with a lot of things that you've allowed into your life now. And I think that's, in our day and age, one of the things that can kind of stop people from fully following God. Because now I have to change my behavior. Now I have to change certain attitudes. But again, through the Holy Ghost, we can do it. We can't do it without the Spirit of God. And God gave us that as a, as a help. I want to talk about Elijah and Jezebel. 1 Kings 18.13 talks about Jezebel, that she was a prophet killer. <laughs> it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> it can get so hot here. Quote, when Jezebel married Ahab, she persuaded him to introduce the worship of the Tyrian god Baal, a nature god. A woman of fierce energy, she tried to destroy those who opposed her. Most of the prophets of Yahweh were killed at her command. Sometime later, 
Elijah had the Baal priest slain after they lost a contest with him to see which God would heed prayers to ignite a bull offering, Baal or Yahweh. When Jezebel heard of the slaughter, she angrily swore to have Elijah killed, forcing him to flee for his life. 1 Kings 18, 19, um, and then 1 Kings 19, verse 3. The last vicious act attributed to Jezebel is recorded in 1 Kings 21, 5 through 16. Adjacent to Ahab's palace, there was a vineyard, which he coveted, and it belonged to a common man, Naboth of Jezreel. Um, when Nadab, or sorry, when Naboth refused to part with his vineyard, which was an inheritance that he got from his fathers, Jezebel falsely charged him with blaspheming God and the king, which led to Naboth's death by stoning. Elijah confronted Ahab in the vineyard, predicting that he and all his heirs would be destroyed and that the dogs and Jezreel would devour Jezebel. So Jezebel was an enemy that Elijah had to fight mentally and spiritually. There was an all-out attack from Jezebel toward Elijah that actually struck so much fear and depression in his mind that he despaired of his own life at one point. The scripture says, Ahab told his wife Jezebel what Elijah had done and that he had killed the prophets. She sent a message to Elijah. You killed my prophets, now I'm going to kill you. I pray that the gods will punish me even more severely if I don't do it by this time tomorrow. Elijah was afraid when he got her message and he ran to the town of Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there, then walked another whole day in the desert. Finally, he came to a large bush and sat down in its shade. He begged the Lord, I've had enough, just let me die. I'm no better off than my ancestors. Then he lay down in the shade and fell asleep. So just those words, I mean, you imagine this man, so bold, you know, loyal. Jehovah is my God. I'm coming, I'm coming after all these idols and everything that he did. And then this Jezebel comes and says what she says. And that strikes, like I said, it was, it was a spiritual and mental um, attack, truly. So that Jezebel spirit has a goal of silencing the voice of God through God's people. The Jezebel spirit seeks to strike fear in the people of God and place doubt in, God, in, in, in God's abilities to deliver, uphold, and sustain his chosen people. Jezebel uses deception and seduction to achieve her end goals of destruction. From the outward appearance, Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit makes it appear like she's winning. She seeks to isolate and fill a believer's heart with condemnation. There is only one thing to do with Jezebel and that spirit of Jezebel, and that's to kill her and completely discard her remains. I know that sounds really, it's true. You just have to cut it off. You just have to completely kill. And we know what happened to her. Um, the dogs, like, literally ate her. There was nothing left of her. Sorry, I'm going quick because there, it's, there, like I said, yeah. <laughs> now, I want to briefly highlight um, John the Baptist. So John the Baptist's ministry was marked by the spirit and power of Elijah. That was Luke 1, 17, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah, that wording, 
indicates John resembled Elijah in doing a similar work of revealing the true God through a ministry devoted to preaching repentance and the certainty of things contained in the scriptures regarding Christ. Perhaps it also includes working with a similar zeal, though he accomplished his function without miracles. It's interesting because Elijah is known for miracles. John never actually performed a miracle, but he walked in the spirit and power of Elijah. Obviously, God does not measure a man's greatness by the miracles that he does because Jesus himself said of John the Baptist that there was none greater. But then he also said he that's least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. So sometimes we can focus so hard on the gifting or what somebody's doing. That doesn't mean even, you know, that you, again, people that kind of go around saying that they're prophets, like, well, your work and your fruit has to show that that's true. And it's not just because you can lay hands on someone and whatever. Or I don't even know. You know, do some type of what we would consider a miracle. God's not impressed. <laughs> so John restored all things necessary to the fulfilling of his mission and his mission only, which was to prepare the way before the Messiah. His mission parallels Elijah's, which was to reveal the true God to people who had lost their way. Elijah was a light in his day, and John, too, was a light in his time. But he was not the light. John clearly pointed to Jesus as the Messiah so that people could repent, even as Elijah differentiated the true God from the Baals so um, the people at that time would repent. So the spirit and power of Elijah doesn't mean that Elijah was reincarnated. Um, it does show us, though, that when someone says, Elijah spirit or you know you have an Elijah spirit that they're referring to someone that is walking in the same calling in the office as Elijah did in that same boldness and um, you know just that same spiritual strength uh, truly on that straight and narrow committing themselves to God in that matter manner Elijah's departure into heaven I wanted to mention and just read this first. Um, this is what we'll pick up with the life of Elijah, or sorry, Elisha next week. But um, I just wanted to read this first. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Amazing. So... How is Elijah's life relevant for today? And we've kind of touched on it um, already, but Elijah proved to us the importance of bringing back the worship of Jehovah, the Bible way, destroying the idol spirits of today and binding the spirit of Jezebel. Elijah was the epitome of a prophet, and he showed us that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophetic office when he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah's message, return to the Lord with all of your heart, not just in practice of spiritual traditions, but in relationship and true communion with God. Still very relevant for today. Elijah's message was to God's chosen people to tear down idols. What are the idols of today? They're, they're subtle. They're often sometimes in our own homes. And because it's become common culture, we often don't recognize them. Just like they probably didn't recognize that them 
going to, they for sure didn't, when they were going to Dan, when they were going to Bethel to offer sacrifices, that A, it wasn't, it was to a false god, B, but that wasn't even the place you were supposed to be doing it. It was just common practice. And we have to be careful not to allow cultural norms that truly are an affront against God to creep into our lives and separate us from true Bible worship. Um, spirits of idolatry learn how to mold and blend into the culture of its day. They're old, ancient spirits, but they they know how to fit, <laughs> and, and they and I and they target the people of God because they already have the world. I mean, the world's already sold out to the to the devil. Um, if you can get intertwined though with the people of God, then you've taken a lot of authority that doesn't belong to you. That's what it is. I know, um, like in African culture, in African American culture, actually, there is a lot of um, a blending of like ancient African culture that it's, it's just a part of the church. It's just a part of a norm. And even now, today, you kind of see that I mean, this is what I see, this is my assertion, that in a lot of like African-American churches, um, the emphasis is more on culture than it is on the Bible and on like truly teaching the word of God. Um, but that's not the only culture. There are many cultures that do. There's just this kind of fusion and blending with ancestors and history. And you, really, the point is, is that we have to know what the word of God says, and that's what we have to follow, period. The spirit of Elijah and an attitude like Elijah exposes and destroys those idols by whatever means necessary. Prayer brings those, you know, it, we don't, I mean, it sounds so like, like awful to say idol, you know, but when you start to pray, God will show you what idols there might be in your own life that you had didn't know were erected there. Maybe even by, you know, family. I mean, I grew up at the church, like, I, you know, from birth, but yet there are things that now I'm catching, like, was this just religious tradition? This has nothing to do with anything, but, you know, it was regarded as, like, a commandment of God or something that was so sacred. But prayer will expose that. Mm -hmm. And then there, and then you have to do something about it, like Elijah really commissioned the people to do when he said, if the Lord be God, then follow him. You know, when God shows you something, and that's, that's when you have to take care of it. Um, Elijah showed us the importance of turning from convenience living to sacrificial living for the cause of the kingdom of heaven. And now we know we live in, in a culture of convenience. Um, you know how much easier it was for them to go to Dan and to go to Bethel? Then they have to pack up their family. They had to bring their sacrifice. They had to do all of these things that required time. You know, they, they, you picture it in today's day and age, you know, now I got to take off of work. Like now I have to do all of these things. This is so inconvenient, you know? Um, and Elijah challenges us, you know, it's, it's really about, it's not that you're going out of your way necessarily to sacrifice, but 
things that are of worth and value often do come, always come with a level of sacrifice. You're not going to have a mantle and a spirit and power like Elijah if you're not sacrificing in any way. You know, and it, it, it might not be to go <laughs> knock on the White House's door and tell the president what's what, but it really could be in your personal consecration to God. And then God will lead you on a path, lead us on a path of drawing closer to him, benefiting, you know, everybody that's around us, people that we have influence with. Quote, God wants all his people to be prophets and agents of the truth. We are called to be catalysts for the kingdom of God whenever and wherever we are. God has given every believer a prophetic sphere of influence. While we are not called to be prophets in the exact way as Elijah, we nevertheless play a prophetic role in our time and place in history. The Lord has given each of us a platform and it is our responsibility to be good stewards and use our platform to represent the truth and love of the kingdom of God. And I know whenever, whenever you draw close to God, you know, you start drawing close to God, that's when it becomes more potent. You kind of can see like, you know, this is, this is what I need to be doing. But when you're not drawing close to God, not, you know, desiring to walk in relationship with him and praying, then it kind of, the lines are kind of blurred. It doesn't seem as important, but God has chosen all of us. Like I said, he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets. So there is that prophetic calling and office, but we all have within us, God, like I said, would the scripture that I read earlier, would to God that all of God's people would be prophets, meaning God wants us to proclaim his word. He wants us to, to proclaim it like he gave it to us um, and for us to commit ourselves to that in the measure that Elijah did.